actually look to the passage ahead, and you'll notice that today we're covering the entirety or most of the chapter 7. But because of the length of the passage and also because it reads very much as a, a journal and a log, I'm just going to read for our scripture reading today uh, verses 5 to 7, and then I'm going to read the last verse of the chapter, verse uh, 73. So that'll be our scripture reading. So as an act of reverence and worship, if I could ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word, Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 5 to 7, and then all the way down to the last verse, in verse 73. But this is God's word for us today. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his, own, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Banah. The number of the men of the people of Israel. And then down in verse 73, it says that the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And this is God's word for us, friends. Please take your seats. Well, if you've been following the story of Nehemiah, you'll recognize that he's a wonderfully gifted man. He's shown himself to be a valiant leader, a godly man full of heart. But he also shows himself to have the practical skills of being a civil engineer. And now what we see here is that in some sense, he becomes an urban planner. He built the city and the wall around the city, and now he needs a strategy to populate it with people. Because as we read in verse 73, when it says the people came back, from their exodus into the hometown of Jerusalem, and they were in their towns, it doesn't mean that they're in the city. They went back to their hometowns. Because as all of you know, it's really challenging, it's difficult to pick up your life and everything and your children and move into a new city. Any move could be pretty challenging and difficult. So his population, his strategy, is to figure out how to build up the population of Jerusalem as an urban planner. Because after all, the whole goal is not just to have a nice architectural building, but to bring the people of God into the presence of God so that they could worship God. And that's what we have here is the beginning of a strategy to figure out how can I get people to live as a people of God together and move over into this new city with a new wall that I've just built into this city. Did you know that the last time I read, half the world's population now lives in cities? And some estimates are that by the year 2050, over 7 billion people will live in about 900 different cities alone. They say cities are the center of culture, of power, of the economy. It's the world-changing influences that could really change the culture of a society and a nation. It can also bring its own challenges because there's overcrowding, there's poverty, all kinds of different unemployments and acts of injustice, isolation, and loneliness because of the hustle and bustle of the city. Nehemiah probably thought about that, would be my guess, because those concerns are nothing new. But Nehemiah is not concerned about populating all cities. He's concerned about populating the city of Jerusalem. And the reason he wants to populate the city of Jerusalem is not for economic reasons, nor was it for political reasons. It's what we call redemptive reasons, for kingdom reasons, for gospel reasons. He did this by way of covenant, 
this relationship that God has with his people. He now shows himself to be an urban planner for the kingdom of God. And the first thing that he does as a writer and planner is he trying to figure out what is the potential of the population of the city. So he brings out and he discovers that there's a, a scroll or some sort of paper that has a genealogy of some of the first people that immigrated into the city of Jerusalem. And the reason this is important in that there's so many verses with all these different names is because the genealogy is not just about a family tree. A genealogy is about your identity. It's about your family that you love. It's to realize that, as a reminder, you're not from this world, but your family tree shows you that you're from a different world, the very kingdom of God, that your world here on earth is not your home, but your kingdom of heaven is where you're destined to live as your home. Genealogies was a reminder to remain faithful and true to the promises of God because it shows that your grandfather and your grandmother and your great-grandfather were made in covenant relationship with God and they came to Jerusalem for a reason to worship him. It shows that the returning Jews were part of a long line of covenant people. It reinforces the message that they were different from the rest of the nations. And the reason they were different was not because they were so smart or so good, because they were actually the most common type of people. But the genealogy reminds them that they're a different type of people because of the God that they worship. And so we'll look at this core makeup of God's people. What kind of community were these people? It's sort of a seed of what the church is. And it shows us the importance of what it means to populate a city, but really as a spirit-filled community of God, not in terms of the superiority imperialism, but one moved and catapulted and calibrated by grace, love, and truth as a spirit-filled people of God that we call the church. How do they relate to one another? How do they interact with one another? What is their vision? What is their purpose? And so I think this passage shows us all of these things, but we could hone it down to three perspectives about the community of God as we look at the genealogy of the people that Nehemiah is trying to remember to bring people in to populate the city of Jerusalem. Three broad things, not the only things, but at least important things. One, they were united by a common vision. A common vision. Secondly, there's a wide diversity of people and gifts. And then thirdly, there was a providential care of God that was really intimate. So three things that we see about this community, they're united by this vision, this purpose of why they existed. Secondly, this unity was expressed in a diversity of different people, backgrounds, ethnicities, gender, ages, skill sets. And lastly, through this whole journey, there's a deep and intimate, providential kindness and caring of God their Father. So let's consider this together. What was unique about this community? One was that they, through the genealogy, were reminded of their vision of why they existed and what they're trying to do, a unity of vision. Jerusalem was a city of God where God would dwell with his chosen people. And it's really a fulfillment of what we learned in the Old Testament when God enters into a relationship with his people, starting with Abraham, then another relationship with Moses, and then another relationship with King David. And each time, God promises them basically some facet of a new land to live in, a new city to be with, and a, a people that you could do life with. So you have a city, you have a land, and then you got people. And so some thought when finally they rebuilt this temple with Nehemiah and Ezra that the fulfillment of this wonderful life and promise of a hustle and bustle city, an awesome people and family to live with, and also just 
a land that we can own because we all know that real estate is what drives the economic life of people in the economy. They thought this is going to be a wonderful life. And what we have in Nehemiah was supposed to be, according to some Jews, the fulfillment of all that. They're like, this is going to be great. And so Nehemiah wanted to remind them, this is the promise. Now it's here. Pick up your bags, pack them up, and move into the city so we can fulfill this vision that was made to your forefathers and Father Abraham. But what we see here, friends, and if you read the Bible later, is that the promises wouldn't ultimately be fulfilled by Nehemiah and a little city of Jerusalem. But that promise of this wonderful life was ultimately filled by a better Nehemiah in Jesus Christ, who brings into vision the new Jerusalem. See, the city here, when you read about this in the Old Testament, in Jerusalem, when you read about it later on, was actually a little bit of a letdown. All this wild dreams, you know, the American dream, like some people used to say. And you come here, and the Jerusalem people came here, and the Jews came, and it was actually a big letdown. The temple and the city wasn't as beautiful and thriving as it could be. People weren't as nice as they could have been. It wasn't a kingdom domination that God would come back as king and Israel would be with a reigning nation. It wasn't any of that. In some sense, life just kind of moved on as well as it did before, and it was a big letdown. Many of you may be able to relate to this. A couple years ago, I spoke at a retreat, and then during the prayer time, one of the moms of the, the church who was a member of the church was just expressing heartache because she had this wonderful brochure of an all-inclusive resort and vacation. And so she booked it for her family as a great, exciting vacation for the kids. And when she got there, the reality of what was in the vacation was so different from the brochure. It smelled different. The plumbing was, had issues. The electricity had issues. It smelled musty in there. The pool was half empty. Nothing looked exactly what the brochure was. And she was sharing this and how heartbreaking it was for her. Well, maybe those are first world problems. Probably are. But in some sense, it was a disappointment. And when you read about Jerusalem, that's exactly what we experienced here. They go into this city, and eventually when we read about this, it was just a big letdown. There's no way it could have fulfilled the promises. Let me read to you a glimpse of what the promise was of what this vision of Jerusalem was supposed to be. It comes to the prophet Jeremiah in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 29. This is is supposed to be a vision of what they're experiencing. And it says there, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill, you, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Friends, it's a wonderful vision. No evil, hope, a future, a welfare, and a really vibrant relationship with God. Man, it's a wonderful vision, but it wasn't fulfilled in Nehemiah. Now, you can experience this. COVID, they said, was an interesting time because it was the easiest time for members to switch churches because <laughs> you're only worshiping virtually. It was the best time to switch churches, and in fact, it was basically like a buffet of preachers and churches because you could visit five different churches through live stream in one hour. And we hear about this all across different churches, even in Florida, in New Jersey, and especially in Orange County, that pastors get together, and we know that all these people are switching churches during COVID. 
This is the funny thing. It may look really good on the website. Education looks remarkable. Your kids are going to grow up and believe in Jesus. Worship is going to be spirit-filled. You'll have sermons that are inspiring. We have a great facility. And you know what? It's going to be really fun. And your family will thrive, and you'll thrive, and you'll prosper. And it's a glorious vision until you actually visit the church. And a couple of months later, you'll realize all the churches, in some sense, is kind of the same. Because the church, unfortunately, is built up with broken sinners like you and me, so we always sin against each other, and there's always disappointment, and we live on this side of glory, and the church is going to be broken, programs don't run as well, and the teaching is not as thriving as it could be, and ministry is not as life-giving as we thought it was going to be. We all get a sense of what this dream could be. We're all a little bit disappointed, unless you understand this, that the fulfillment of Jeremiah was only supposed to get a taste in the city of Jerusalem and even a church like New Life Press, a taste of what's to come. There's something that's real and honest, but the real dream fulfillment won't come until Jesus Christ comes back on that one day that we eagerly await. And he tells us in Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 to 2, that there's a new Jerusalem that's going to come and enter in this world. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that the taste we get, the reason that they're so distinct about these people was that the unity of their vision ultimately will be captured by Jesus Christ, their great king, who ushers in a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And finally, we'll get the full experience of what Jeremiah 29 promises us. Because just like Moses, who led the Israelites out of an exodus from Egypt, Jesus leads us out of an exodus from our own sin. Nehemiah leads the Israelites out of an exodus from Babylon, but it's ultimately fulfilled in this vision of Revelations 21. You'll have that dream. It's not going to be a brochure that's going to disappoint. We get a taste of it every day and every Sunday that we're here, and that's what unites us as the people of God to be the spirit-filled community of the church of Jesus Christ to move forward with the plan and purpose that God has for us. But this leads us to our second point. It's not just a unity of vision, but there's a wide diversity of people here. We're not going to go through every name, and all of you will be very happy about that, but we, at least we could kind of glimpse what kind of community brings this diversity together. Well, this is what we'll look at. Well, first, you notice in verse 7, it says that they were led by, three, by 12 different tribal leaders. Now, the Bible likes 12. There's 12 tribes of Israel, makes up the people of God. Here in the New Exodus, when they came back into Jerusalem, they organized the people according to their families or by their tribal leaders, and there are 12 tribes. That leads us into the New Testament, where there's another 12 that represents the people of God, the 12 apostles in the church. So there's already a diversity here. There's 12 different types of people. You see this in verse 7. You also see throughout these verses that there's diversity of people and gifts. There's a wonderful rainbow in color of different needs in the church, and there's also a wonderful rainbow of color of the various personalities and gifts that the church has. You see this throughout the passage in all the people that are listed there in the genealogy. But this is the core issue of diversity. When Nehemiah is trying to figure out the people, there are two things that he's trying to identify. Who's your family name or what city did you live in? They want to know who's, where's your hometown and who's your family. 
You know, it's no different when you meet people today. It's not the same thing as a covenant here. But whenever you meet somebody, or if you're a parent, or if you're someone who's dating, and you've got to bring your boyfriend and girlfriend to your parents, what do they often say? What city do they live in? What is their zip code? You know, what's their family background like? Are their parents Bible-believing? They go to church. You want to, what do they do? You want to find out all the background. And in some ways, that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. Their family name and their city. But what we'll see is this. Not everyone was able to prove or actually was part of the people who had the right name or even had the right zip code. But you know what, friends? This is something brilliant about the community of diversity. They were still accepted and brought into the people and the family of God. It shows us that the community of God, even back then in the New Testament, was saturated and fueled by grace because there's people here that are listed here that he didn't come from the right zip code and didn't come from the right family, but said, you know what, you can still be with us and you still have certain privileges and certain rights and we'll accept you. Verses 61 to 63, there are also people there that list there that essentially had neither. And one commentator by the name of Derek Kidner says this, they were basically rootless. They had no home, identity, or family. And he says, to be rootless and anonymous is the last thing an Israelite would want to be. Because then it means that you have no home, no identity, no sustenance. And friends, we can relate to this in some level, can't we? We can relate about what it feels like to be sort of rootless. You know, maybe we have a place to live. Maybe we have a family name. But in some ways, in our heart of hearts, because of this thing called sin, we feel that we're never at home, that we're rootless. We have nothing grounded in our lives that we don't have anything that anchors us. And sometimes when you go in life like this, it means that anything could sway you, and you go from one thing to the next to the next, whether it's through sin, whether it's through midlife crisis, whether it's through the next big thing that fails and doesn't satisfy. If you're never rooted in Jesus Christ, then you'll never be able to thrive in your life. And what the passage shows us is that for these people who had no name and no zip code, they were still able to root themselves in the covenant promises of God. And that's something that for our community that we could understand and apply to ourselves. Because in Christ, we are found. Our zip code is the kingdom of heaven. Our family name is Christian. And because we're rooted in Christ, we have an eternal family and identity. We have a home and a place of belonging, shown by grace, not by credentials and merit and the right pedigree and family, not by proving our superiority over others, but by God's love coming down in a person who saved us and loved us and redeemed us and grafted us into the register of the eternal life to say our genealogy now is our name engrafted into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You see this throughout the passage, friends. There are foreign names, people who are not Israelites in verses 46 to 56. Maybe these were people that were prisoners of war through the conquest of King David, but there's a list of there, Sisera, Menumen, Nefushim, and Rezin. In verses 46 to 56, all the commentators note these were not Israelites. They were foreigners. But it makes it clear that even the Old Testament, according to Exodus 12, if foreigners were circumcised, they were still accepted as family and had a level of blessings that were theirs. In other words, they were strangers, they were enemies, they were far off, but God brought them into the family of God. What you have here, friends, in the diversity of this community fueled by grace is really an Old Testament picture of what Paul talks about in the church at Ephesus, where he writes in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. 
And he says, therefore, remember that at once you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you are once far off, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what verses 46 to 56 show us, that there are foreigners that were aliens. They had no home. They had no family. But the very grace of God shows itself, at least in seed form in these verses, that if they got circumcised, which points towards the circumcision in Jesus, the gospel belief in Jesus, they get engrafted into a new family. Friends, the reason this is so important it's because you look at people who had no zip code, no family name. You look at people who are foreigners by their name, and they got brought in because of the grace of God. You have unaccounted people who are accepted and given the same standing as some of the circumcised foreigners. And this speaks to the dangers for today. Because it shows and speaks against people like you and me who pride ourselves on a certain race and racism, a certain ethnicity and cultural superiority a certain pedigree and family name or degrees that you've had. It speaks into all of that and says nothing should divide the community of God's people. The diversity comes about because it accepts a wide variety of people, even though the way to the kingdom is narrow through Jesus Christ and him alone, but it opens up a wide variety of people to come and embrace and prostrate themselves before the cross of Jesus. That's why there's so many people that are different from us. The challenge for the Church of Jesus Christ and for you and me here today, friends, the challenge is to say, we know that community is tough and people here are very different from you. They misunderstand you, they judge you, they impugn motives, you probably do the same. But we can move forward because if we are a community saturated by what we see in these verses, that we are accepting of people because we don't find our identity on a defining marker such as our resume or socioeconomic power, and that we're fueled by grace because there are people who are rootless and they're lonely and they're just looking for a place to stick, and we can be that community for them, empowered by Jesus. Then we begin to get a taste of what God has in plan for New Life Presbyterian. That's the diversity of the community. It's much more diverse, I would argue, probably much more diverse than our church here today because there's going to be cultural diversity, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity. There's going to be differences. That's on top of the things that we have a struggle here at this church. We have a problem with diversity just in different opinions, even though a lot of ways are still monocultural or either middle to upper middle class, primarily Asian American, things that I think are beautiful and we could use that for the kingdom. But in some ways, we could acknowledge that this community we're called to be together as family was much more diverse, and the challenges were probably much more difficult than the things that you and I may be struggling here today. And that's a subtle, just challenge and gentle reminder. How is our community supposed to be different? Yeah, sure, not everyone will get your humor. You may not like think, think everyone else is funny. You may not resonate with each other. We have different hobbies and aspirations. Maybe the social cues are a little bit different, and there's a little different level of EQ among people. But that shouldn't stand in way of a barrier, as a barrier, so that we reach out in love and serve one another in the diversity of God's people. That's what we see here in the genealogies. But third and last, we see the providential care of God. We see a unity of vision, a diversity of people fueled by grace. But one thing that gives us encouragement is that there's a providential care of God. Happened a couple of weeks ago at church. Went over to hang out with the college students after second service, got a Phil's coffee. 
And then a student came over, bought by Director Paul. She'd been coming to our church. I knew who she was. I guess we didn't talk that much. She was like, she just wondered if I knew her name. <laughs> and I knew her name, and I was like, of course I know your name. I knew your major. I knew where you're going to work after because I've talked about members and things we could pray for among staff. And she was so shocked, and she was so, I guess, encouraged. She just thought, like, I had no idea who she was. And yeah, I don't know everybody's name in the specifics, but by God's grace, I knew this person, and she was so moved by this. Do you know why? You're like that too, maybe in different contexts. When somebody important to you who you think doesn't even know that you live knows your name, how do you feel? You feel good. You feel seen. And if they understand a little bit about your life, about what you're going through, a little hint of compassion, a little understanding of a struggle, oh, man, you feel so seen and understood. One of the implicit applications about the genealogy is that there are specific names. Why do you think that it's in the book of eternity, and they couldn't just said, hey, there's 70 people here, but rather they take up all this paper to write out individual names. Why? Because he cares specifically about people and individuals in your life story. You think he doesn't see you, but he sees you directly where you are. Otherwise, the names of people would never be in anywhere in the book of the Bible. He knows your name. He cares about you individually. He knows your heartache. He knows your history. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows the sins that you're dealing with. He knows the service that you've done, but no one else seems to congratulate you or thank you. He sees all this, and it matters to him, and it makes a difference in eternity. You see, friends, the Bible and also to God History was important, so you look back at these names in the genealogy because names, they tell a living story. It conveys to us how truths are communicated, how stories are celebrated, how values were transmitted. It describes the heartaches and the heroism of personalities and people. Each person in this list probably has a story that they could tell that reflects their need of God and received his kindness and care, each one of them probably had a story, just as each one of you, in various degrees, if you ever feel called to leave New Line Presbyterian, would have a story of what it was like at New Line Pres, because history and personalities matter, and God cares about all that. Because you see, friends, the list here is more than names, but it's a narrative of courage, of faithfulness, of love and loyalty, of men and women who are struggling together, but through it all, God cared for them and sustained them, and they're following this great vision to become the people in the church of Jesus Christ. These genealogies and these names show that they had been empowered to face the future of where they are going, even though they didn't know what that would look like or what that would feel like, what challenges they would face or heartaches they would embrace or what they would have to endure. The new most important thing, as they look back on the genealogy, that God was always there. And so even though they didn't know where the future would hold, it empowered them to face the unknown because they look back and say, one thing's for sure, God was always there in the ups and downs, in the peaks and troughs of my life, in the heartaches and celebrations of community and individuals because the name was written there and he cares for this. So it empowers them to face the future because one thing's for sure, God will always be with them. That's why probably the fulfillment of this comes in the Great Commission when Jesus, in his resurrection power, says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. And what does he say as one of his promises to the disciples? I will be with you always. Now, disciples weren't educated. 
They weren't in power. They weren't politicians. They were fishermen. They were regular people. And you have Jesus Christ saying, you're going to be the foundation of the church, go to the ends of the world, and evangelize, and be willing to risk your death. And you're looking, I don't have a theological education. I don't have any money. I don't have any power or connections. How in the world am I going to be the foundation of the church, go to the ends of the world, and how am I going to get the courage to do this? From the promises of Jesus Christ, he says, you know what? I'm going to be with you always. That will empower to go forward. And the genealogy points towards this. It says he's always going to be with us in this personal providential care. See, Nehemiah, he shows us that he had this very sense and experience of God's personal care, a personal care that he experienced by his personal God. And it it shows it really quickly in verse 5. It says, And my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. He always said this throughout the the book of Nehemiah. Everything's very personal. He just didn't say, God told me to do this and I go. You have to look carefully here. There's a pronoun there, a personal possessive pronoun, that there's twice. He says, my God put it into my heart because he's intimate and he's close, and he senses that it was a covenant relationship. It wasn't just any God. He could have said, God put it over there and told me to do it. He said, God, my God. It wasn't any God, but it was his. In covenant relationship, he knew God in a personal way. He spoke about God using personal, possessive pronouns. And we see this throughout the Bible. One of the powers of the gospel is to look and highlight, when you read the New Testament and Old Testament, all the personal, possessive pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. In Galatians, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me because of the personal pronoun. You see, friends, it's not just a Christian thing, but personal pronouns actually have power. I read an article in the Harvard Business Review. It was a study by a linguist. His name was James Pennebaker. He's a professor at a higher institution. In the 90s, he he created this program that basically scanned all the transcripts and categorized words in different texts, differentiating different types of words, and he focused on what he called function words. Function words are transition words or personal pronouns. He analyzed 400,000 different essays by college students, instant messages between people who are dating, chat room discussions, press conference transcripts, and he concluded that these function words, these personal pronouns, are important keys to someone's psychological state and reveal much more than we think. And his whole project was basically to answer this question. Can these words, these insignificant words, provide a window into the soul? And his conclusion was that it does. And he's not a believer. He's just doing this out there in culture. He says, when I analyze poems by writers who are depressed versus poems that were written by writers who are not depressed, I thought I'd find a lot more dark content in the depressed poets, a lot more negative content, but he says that wasn't the case. He said what I noticed in the depressed poets really was a vast increase in number of the first personal pronoun, I. So those poets who even led to the point of being suicidal, they had way more emphasis on I. I felt this, and I did this. And study after study, he says, the personal pronoun has a deep impact on a person's self-understanding and place in this world. You could read military transcripts and could tell who were some people in power versus those who didn't. 
And the one example that he shows this in a negative way was this. When somebody says, I don't think I buy it, you're thinking, well, it just is like the idea. But that phrase, I don't think I buy it, two personal pronouns emphasizes something that's very self-centric, someone who's in power, someone who calls the shots. He could have said anything, I don't buy it, or that's ridiculous, but he put, I don't buy it, I don't think I buy it twice, shows that it reveals a lot about the person's psyche, a window to the person's soul, how the person sees himself. Because you see, friends, pronouns reveal a lot about a person's position in life and self-understanding and view of the world. And that's why I absolutely believe when Nehemiah says in verse 5, then my God put it into my heart. We see a lot about his self-understanding and his view of the world. Martin Luther once said, the sweetness of the gospel lies mostly in pronouns such as me, my, and thy. God who loved me gave himself up for me. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven there. Martin Luther's point is that the gospel is personal, and for each of us as individuals, it has to be personal. The Bible doesn't limit the personal relationship to the giants of faith like Paul and Nehemiah and Peter or Luther and John Calvin. But the Bible's full of prayers and promises and invitations that there are many you's and I's and me's for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as Nehemiah has shown us, then God, my God, put it into my heart. And the reason that we could do this is because there's another personal pronoun that Jesus Christ has exclaimed on the cross. And what did he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did this because he said, my God forsook me so I could make you mine. And we as sinners could receive Jesus as our Savior and my personal God who put this vision into my heart. to move forward in faith and life. That's the genealogy. God's personal, providential care for what you're going through. Friends, let's pray at this point. Bow your heads with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, my God and my Savior, my co-heir and my elder brother, in Jesus Christ, we thank you that we have your ear. We thank you that you loved us and gave your son for us to die for us so that we may live for you and for one another. Oh, Lord, I pray that for everyone in this room, they would come to embrace and see that life in this world is not perfect, community is not perfect, but we are united by this one vision to be the spirit-filled community of the Church of Jesus Christ with all this diversity and wonderful rainbow of colors and gifts that each individual life story brings to the table. And we can all do this because we know that you sustain us and that you love us and you see each and every one of our names written in the book of life for those of us who accepted Christ and that you are a personal God who cares for us and loves us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.